This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. This podcast will definitely be cross-posted to the Life Wisdom podcast because our scholar feature today has a lot to say about a great many things, both academic and probably more practical for people in the world. Um, It's my pleasure to invite to the podcast Dr. Greg Bailey. Uh, He is at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University, and he's been a a great influence and inspiration to many a scholar uh, in in Puranic studies. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks, Raj. And thanks for the nice words. (laughs) You're right. Um, the check is in the mail, correct. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What, what, um, tell us a bit about your journey of how you ended up studying what you studied. Okay, my first degree was in economics. In the um, mid to late 60s, I did economics, but I was always interested in religion. So I did an MA preliminary at Melbourne University of Middle Eastern Studies, which was mainly Islam and ancient Near Eastern mythology. And I didn't learn a language, but then I went to Lancaster University for a year in 1972 in the UK. And did an MA by coursework and thesis, and two of the subjects were Hinduism and Buddhism, and I also started learning Sanskrit language. I wrote a short thesis on the god Brahma. Then I came back to Australia, went to Melbourne University, did a PhD, and did a PhD on an extension of the MA thesis, and it was a full study of the mythology of the god Brahma or Brahma as as it's pronounced in India. This was published by Oxford University Press in Delhi. And I continued working on a range of things, but before that in fact was published, I had gone to Paris for three months to attend the seminars of Madeleine Biardot, who was a professor at the Sorbonne and had written some extremely influential articles on the Mahabharata, which was my favourite text and remains so. It's so rich in so many ways. Biardo read right through my PhD. I altered quite a bit of it and tried to make it more receptive to a more general audience. And it was, as I say, published by OUP in 1983. When I was in Paris, I used to work in the library at the École Française d'Extremorient, and for some reason, there was a manuscript of the Ganesha Purana there. And I thought, I really need to translate something to help improve my Sanskrit, 
because I wasn't teaching it at that stage. Only later on was I teaching it. So I found out about this text and I thought nobody's published, translated this text. It's such an important God, a text of such an important God, why hasn't it been done? So I resolved to do it. And so I went to Pune in 1983, beginning of 83, to collect manuscripts from the Bandarka Oriental Research Institute, then also from the a library in Chennai, I think the, the um, government manuscript library, and also at Tanjore and the Asiatic Library in Bengal, in, Cal in Kolkata, and also from the India Office Library. So I had a number of manuscripts, and there were three printed editions, one which had a Marathi translation. And so over about a 15-year period, I ended up really starting in 1983. The last volume was published in 2008. There were two volumes. And I was lucky that I met at a conference, World Sanskrit Conference in Holland, I think in 86 or 80, something like that, Henry Heinrich von Stiefenkron from the University of Tübingen. And Henry offered to publish it, asked me if I'd publish it in a series, Piranha Research Publications being published by his department at the University of Tübingen, which I agreed. So the first volume ended up being published in 1995 and the second one in 2008. The intention of these was not just to produce a, tran a translation of an untranslated text, but also to do an analysis of the Purana as genre. That is to take it away from this German text historical method where they simply break Puranas up into small parts and look at how they might have influenced each other to reflect a particular religious view. So I had very long introductions to both volumes and at the end of the book I had a very long section of notes notes to each chapter doing a kind of structural analysis looking at narrative forms forms of temporality repetitions and so forth and in that sense I tried to give it a kind of a theoretical ambit that might be interested to other people who wanted to have a different view of how the Puranas were looked at so I looked at it in the way that you've looked at the Marakandeya Purana as a received text rather than just bits and pieces of texts that have been slung together in some kind of way. So that I worked, wrote a number of articles on the Puranas at various times. In 1985, I published a short, uh, I published a small book called On Pravriti and Navriti, these two technical terms. Pravriti meaning something like moving forward or life in the world and Navriti moving back or renunciation. And I traced the development of these terms in some late Vedic texts in the Mahabharata and some Puranas. And subsequent to that, I have written a number of articles on this, on the occurrence of these words. And it is my intention to try and write a major work on these two terms and the root vrit, because it's so significant. These terms are so significant as ideological markers. I want to trace it through Sanskrit, Middle Indic, um, Old Tamil and Modern Tamil. 
And I retired about five years ago, even though I'm an honorary research fellow at Latrobe, retired in order to try and um, get this particular work done, but ended up being distracted with all sorts of other things as we are. Okay. Um, what else? Let's see. I was, when in my teaching career, I was teaching in religious studies, then ended up teaching in a social sciences department, which I quite liked because of my economics background and my, my wide reading and sociology and literary theory and so forth. But most of my religious studies teaching was in Buddhism rather than Hinduism. I did teach Hinduism at times and lectures in the Bhagavad Gita and this kind of thing. And so I, the interest in, in Buddhism, in early Indian Buddhism, mainly using Pali sources, provoked an interest in the early socio-economic history um, of Buddhism. And a colleague of mine at Monash University, there's, there's seven universities in Melbourne, and, a, and Ian Mabbott uh, at, um, at Monash. Ian was also interested in this particular thing. He'd worked in Southeast Asia, but he learned Sanskrit at Oxford many years ago. And Ian and I received a large research grant in order to write a book or study of Buddhism in its early socio-economic context. And this ended up being published by Cambridge University Press in 2004 called The Sociology of Early Buddhism. And I don't, I think it's had some, some effect. I think it's, it's been re reasonably widely read and so forth. Now, all along, I retained a pretty strong interest in the Mahabharata. But, and I used to read bits and pieces of it in Sanskrit, in, in Sanskrit classes with students. And I had a few very good graduate students, the best, Adam Bowles, who um, is well known to you. Adam was did a PhD in the upper Dharmaparavan. And he and I would read the text together on a Thursday afternoon. And we read other bits and pieces of the Mahabharata as well. And he's continued to do this now that he's working at the University of Queensland. He still has a reading group, some of his PhD students reading the Mahabharata. And going to conferences in America and interacting with Alf Hildebeutel and Jim Fitzgerald also provoked a continuing interest in the Mahabharata. And in 2006, I taught for a semester at Alf Hildebeutel's University, George Washington University. And apart from the introduction to world religions, which I taught, I also had a, ch a chance to teach my own offering, which was the Mahabharata and early Buddhism, because I'd started developing a theory that the Mahabharata might have been composed or disseminated as a response to the material success of early Buddhism, because we know that from Ashoka's time, if not earlier, there was a lot of money going into the Buddhist Sangha. And the Sangha was an institution and the Brahmins who were developing as a particular ideological group and as a social group had no equivalent form of institution. That is, 
there were viharas, monasteries set up all over the place, all over North India, and even down through the deck and into Andhra and so forth. Monks were very visible, and there was a tremendous amount of construction work going on, which meant that jobs were created in small villages, money was going flowing in, and in terms of pilgrimage sites as well, money was flowing in. And so my hypothesis, which still has to be proven, if it ever can be proven, is that the Mahabharata was partly compo composed on the basis of um, a concern about the success of this other group of people who weren't pushing a view of the world that much different from Hinduism. I mean, bhakti develops in Buddhism, arguably. Uh, devotional forms develop strongly in Buddhism and so forth. And they're not particularly different from Krishna bhakti, for example. But since, since then, I've been trying to work on this. But again, I've been distracted by other things. And I've finally been able to get back to working on this. And the, the, the talk that I gave at your workshop is partly related to that because I was concerned about how popular the Mahabharata really was in ancient India because we read back its contemporary popularity into the past. Whether it was or not, we don't know. And it seems to me it, that inspired me to, to give that talk and the workshop inspired me because it, it, we really have to ask what was the socioeconomic and political background in which the Mahabharata was developed. Now, a number of historians like Ramala Tapa, for example, have, have, have worked on this. Alf Hilterbeitel, to a lesser extent, has worked on it. But it's necessary, I think, to look at the archaeological material. And over the last 20 years, there's been a lot more work done on archaeology, on urban archaeology in particular which can tell us how the people actually live. Julia Shaw at London University has done a lot of very good work on this. And a few American archaeologists have worked, done work on this as well. And so my task is to familiarise myself with this, this particular material in order to make some kind of semi-learned conclusions as to the economic situation in which Brahmins, we assume it was Brahmins, brought together a lot of tales and welded them into this huge Sanskrit epic, the Mahabharata. Uh, the content of the Mahabharata, of course, is, is, is brilliant, to say the least. I mean, we, I often ask myself why, as someone who's pretty much um, politically active in the contemporary Australian scene, because the Australian government is a complete disaster area, why I'm interested in, in the Mahabharata. Well, the Mahabharata is a text, as you well know, that tells us almost everything important that we need to know, as it says in its 56th chapter of the first book. And one can read this text. It's like reading Shakespeare, I suppose. One can read this text and never get sick of reading it. Even if you've read the read the Sanskrit verses quite a few times. You can still find new things in them. So I will continue working on this Sanskrit Buddhist material, that is the, the Buddhist background, the socioeconomic and political background to the development of the Mahabharata in relation to the material success 
of early Buddhism. Thank you. So, Thank you. Thank you for sketching out a, a distinguished and influential series of projects. There's so much there and there's so many um, synchronicities uh, and parallels. Um, uh, just for the listeners, the, the workshop that Greg was talking about uh, a few days ago in, in our time frame, um, I guess the weekend of, of uh, June 19th, 20th, there was... Um, yeah, there was a, an Oxford Center for Hindu Studies um, online Mahabharata extravaganza, a symposium, an online weekend school that I had convened and I had asked Greg to come and present. I'll put the link to that in the podcast notes in case you're interested in checking it out. And he presented on um, this fascinating question of, well, was Mahabharata always popular? Was it popular in, in, in quite ancient times? Um, and so this is apparently his current work, uh, very important work, clearly he hasn't retired, no matter what, uh, what, what designation he's given, <laughs> clearly he hasn't retired. Let's go back uh, a bit to the beginning, the beginning phases when you were working on the Ganesha Purana. Could you unpack for us a little bit about this, what you say, um, you know, my job is to, to ask naive questions, <laughs> to sort of tease things out. But when you say, okay, there was a bunch of manuscripts in Pune, and could you unpack for us, you know, um, um, sort of the establishment of a text, or was there a critical edition, or what is a critical edition? Talk a bit about that, and talk a bit about this, that then dominant school of scholarship that you were trying to innovate. Okay. The, this dominant school of Puranic and epic research was based on the work of, of Willibald Kierfel, who wrote mainly in German and developed this idea of a text history. That is, that these, what they call, and Paul Hacker was another, was a student of Kierfel's and also wrote extensively on it. What they were concerned about was anonymous literature, as, as they called it, because there were no authors that you could tie something down permanently to. These people were concerned about historical developments primarily, partly inspired by work in classical Greek and, and Roman sources. And so they would, careful, looked at the definition of a Purana as having five characteristics. The, um, what is it, the creation of the Pancha, world? Panchalakshana. Panchalakshana, the creation continuation and destruction of the world, lineages of kings and lineages of manus. And it was this was a definition that was given in the Amarakosha, which is a, a synonymic dictionary, I think first century CE or something, second, I don't know exactly. And on this basis, he wanted to try and work out what he considered to be the order form, the original form of what a Purana might be. So he very carefully went through a number of Puranas and developed a particular view of the of these of the narrative development of the Panchalakshana and worked these into five different stages, each of which stage was dependent on the previous one. And there were particular reasons, devotional reasons, why changes might have been made. That is, they argued that Shaivite, I don't say who which Shaivite people did it, changed something to magnify the influence of Shiva in a particular passage, or Vishnu, on the other hand, some people call, Haka called the Padma Harana, 
parts of the Padma Purana, Brahma, it text, and so forth. And this kind of analysis was, they broke up what, what they call in German text Stuka, that is text pieces. And it seemed to me that the Puranas, particularly the indigenous reception of the Puranas in Sanskrit, and many Puranas would have been recited in vernacular languages, of course, but the indigenous reception was to treat the Purana as a whole. Now, manuscript production of these texts probably really flourishes in the 16th, the 17th and 18th century. When I was looking at manuscripts of the Ganesha Purana, I was, it was interesting that most of them were 18th and 17th century. That didn't matter particularly. Um, because I think the text is probably about 14th century. I tried to date it and did detective work, but whether it, I was effective, I don't know. There were three editions that I had, two that were done in Maharashtra, as one might expect, given the centrality of Ganesha being as a, as a deity in Maharashtra and as also in South India. So what I did, I started from the from the the manuscript, the, sorry, the printed editions, the two printed editions, and then I checked these against the manuscripts. The variants weren't that large. The only difference was, I think, that the in the first book, the um, Upasanakanda, which the printed editions have ninety-two chapters. I had not, I made it into 93 following the manuscripts that I had. Now, there's dozens and dozens of manuscripts of this particular text, and I suppose we have to ask why. I mean, people earned, were paid for doing this and also received an enormous amount of merit in doing it. I've even seen Tamil manuscripts being still copied now in the Adyar Library in Chennai. So I don't know how much this is going on now because... Of digital technology. But certainly, texts of this kind were transmitted around the country in manuscript form. That being said, of course, only those who were literate would have been able to, to read these texts out. And so I, as McComas Taylor has shown in his study of the, of the um, Markandeya Purana, a lot of this, most of this recitation is in vernacular languages with some Sanskrit thrown in. And I think that that um, this would have been the case with the Ganesha Purana. But my main theoretical thrust was to take the Purana as a received text, not to cut it up into bits and pieces, because that's not a text at all. The, the Kierful's work on the Purana Panchalakshana as careful as the scholarship is, it's not a text. It's a creation of a German scholar strongly influenced by historicism. It's very useful. The work's very useful. Um, but it's not a text. We have to, in my opinion, respect the integrity of the texts as we have them. Now, we can... There's a writer that has to be added there because... Given the number of manuscripts and given the, 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 the sometimes massive differences in the size and content of these texts, we have to be aware that some of these we're dealing with floating traditions. The Mahabharata is the classic example. The critical edition 
from Pune from 1933 to 1969 has 75,000 verses, whereas the Southern Edition published in Kumbhakonam in 1924, I think, has about 100 or 125,000. I'm not exactly sure. But Mahabharata manuscripts facilitated the addition of all sorts of material and struck me that in dealing with the Puranas, what we're dealing with is texts, the semantic frame of which, or the, the, the that is, the manner in which meaning is created, allows for the insertion of new material without the semantic frame being fundamentally violated. And so I think that by, by looking at, at the richness of the manuscript traditions and not trying to trace these back to an original source, but, but to, to, to look at how they contribute to and derive from the semantic frames that shape these texts, that I think is one important way to look at these particular texts. I mean, the audiences who were listening to these in vernacular languages couldn't give two hoots about who wrote this or who wrote that? They were interested in the content, in the content of the text primarily, and partly for devotional reasons. So, so when you talk about, um, so for example, you take you you refer to the the Mahabharata's uh, critical edition, critical editing project. Um, would you say that that is what is required uh, for the Mahapuranas? Well, it's been done from. It's it it's it's useful to have what's called a diplomatic edition, that which is not necessarily critical, but but it it provides evidence for a lot of the manuscript sources. That is, you you often arbitrarily determine a particular text, which we might call the order text, the original text, and then in footnotes you have all sorts of variant readings, without making any kind of judgment as to which is historically early, earlier or historically later. I think that this kind of work is, is invaluable because it shows the richness of the, and the potential possibilities for development of these texts. There's been half a dozen critical, so-called critical editions done of the Puranas, as you will know from Baroda, um, that there's been a number of done and, and at the Kashiraj Centre, which I don't know if that's still functioning now, but a number of Puranas were um, edited there in so-called critical editions. But the important point, and this applies to the Mahabharata, is that we don't assume that what a critical edition says is exactly what the text was, that is, it's set in ice, because these texts were never set in ice. And I suspect when reading the Mahabharata, Everyone goes to the critical edition. I do it myself all the time and assume that this is what the text is. But in the case of the Puranas in particular, we have to be very wary of that. And we know as scholars, whenever we've got something printed, bang, we go to it straight away because it's so much easier. And particularly when it's digitalized, that makes it easier still. But it's the richness of these texts that's important, and the creation of new Puranas, these, these Upa Puranas, as you know, with Beth, Rolma, Beth working on these Gujarati texts and so forth, and your work on the Devi Mahatmya, it's, it's 
these that these components which can be taken out of the Puranas and utilized in recitational devotional forms that are fundamentally important. I've been I've done a translation of another Ganesha text called the Vinayaka Mahatmya, and I've got some manuscripts which I've got to go through and compare to the printed edition. But this is said to be part of the Skanda Purana. The trouble is everything is said to be part of the Skanda Purana. But it's the it's the potential for growth, con continuity and development in the Puranic tradition, which is equally important as trace, trying to trace things back to some kind of original source from which everything else was changed. So the critical edition, from what I understand from um, philologists, um, um, our colleagues who like to prepare critical editions, is that... Um, uh, they are uh, reconstituting uh, what is considered the sort of oldest, um, the most recent common ancestor, let's put it that way, of the yep. present manuscripts. That is what the aim is. And then do you feel that that's, um, that those methods are, are reliable? Do you feel, I know that we all go to the critical edition of the Mabharata because it exists and the appendices are obviously useful because that's where the, the dynamism is preserved uh, to the extent possible. But what do you feel about the enterprise itself of creating critical editions in this manner? Oh, I think, it, I think it's certainly legitimate. It's such strongly justifiable. I mean, the Mahabharata critical editors knew the text extremely well and they made the assumption that the Shalata manuscripts from Kashmir probably reflected the oldest version of the text, but they were quite careful to try and correlate the northern and southern versions of the text because, in theory, when a text like this moves, when a relatively open text like the Mahabharata moves, then changes can be made. But I think that it's, it's extremely valuable to have these critical additions. There's no question about that at all. I mean, we, we'd, we'd still be all over the place if we didn't, if we we can't we can't all read fifty different manuscripts. We just haven't got the time. And the val the beauty of the critical editions is that they will summarise the main differences and point out what the significance of these differences might be. And that by itself is invaluable. I mean, there's always going to be criticism of the choices that were made to include and exclude particular passages. But that's what scholarship, that's what scholarship is. But I would say again that the, although I was, I was going to say that the, the contemporary popular reception of the Mahabharata, the people are not concerned about inclusion or exclusion. But having said that, we have to be careful. The commentators in the Mahabharata, Arjuna Mishra, I think was the earliest one, and certainly Nilakanta, some of whose text I've looked at, they are, they are philologists. They were concerned. They must have had manuscripts in front of them, and they were concerned about various re variant readings and which was valid, <coughs> excuse me, and which from their point of view was not valid. So, and I think digital technology too, I think, um, makes this, has helped uh, um, this kind of methodology quite considerably. Instead of just reading everything through and so forth, and we we can we can do word searches, uh, as you well know, with with all the texts that have been digitalized, and that's tremendously valuable for looking at concentration of 
of terms and so forth and looking at influences. I've been, I do a lot of word searches in both Buddhist and Hindu texts to see if there's any overlap, this kind of thing. No, it's extremely valuable. Um, you mentioned um, you mentioned in passing earlier in the podcast, uh, you referred to my work on the Markandi Purana, just so the audience knows, my second book, The Goddess and the Sun, in Indian myth, there's a, a, a generous foreword on behalf of Greg Bailey about the book and the work. Um, and probably continuing uh, this work of synchronic reading and developing ways in which you look at a, a Puran as a whole. Uh, in that work, um, you know, I really write as a teacher, maybe sometimes to the detriment of my scholarship, but maybe not. And um, students don't know Sanskrit. So I rely on uh, Parjitra's translation. It's probably the best translation, probably a little better than Dutz one of the very few translations of the Markandi Purana. And I refer to that as the text. Of course, it's based on Banerjee's um, uh, uh, it's critical edition of the text that Parjitur uses. But it's, it's so interesting in terms of what do we consider the text now? Is the translation the text? Is the manuscript the text? And so, um, but nevertheless, it seems to me that whatever you're looking to, whether it's a translation, whether it's, it's a critical edition, whether it's a, a particular manuscript or recension, I really feel very strongly, I really strongly agree with you that there is an integral whole there. It, it seems to me there is this sort of intuitive thematic filing system, this method to the madness. And, and the frames are really cue in terms of what gets put where. Um, you would agree with that, I imagine. Absolutely. I think that to locate the text, from what you've just said, the text is, is more than just the, 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 the Sanskrit version, which is clearly fundamental. And as scholars, we have to rely on that. But the translation also becomes very important. And the, there's a lot of Hindi, trans, Hindi translations of the Puranas. And I think the Vangavasi Press in Calcutta, had, when they edited a Purana, gave a Bengali summary or a Bengali translation as well. And I mentioned before a um, Marathi translation of the Ganesha Purana. It was a good translation. It was accurate. Um, but this, these, the, the, these are theoretical questions, in fact, where, where do the texts lie? I mean, for, for a lot of um, contemporary Indians in the, in the late 80s, the Mahabharata texts lay in the Duradarshan series, which is shown every Sunday morning. So... I, I would agree completely with you that we can't just be purists and look at a particular fossilised version of a text. The, 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 one of the points about the Mahabharata and the Puranas is that they're extremely rich in terms of their content. And that means that they're taken up at different historical periods. And it's the richness of the content that has to be taken into consideration from a synchronic perspective, as well as a diachronic perspective. I mean, your work is synchronic, mine tends to be synchronic as well. And Biardot's, as you know, she was, her work was essentially synchronic. That's what me, attracted me to it. But yes, the question of where the text lies is a fundamental one. And we'll never have agreement on that, I, su I would suggest. <laughs> Well, and and part of part of the tension lies uh, for me, anyways, and me in particular. That in addition to being a scholar, I belong to uh, uh, to oral traditions, and I've learned texts traditionally. And so, 
when you have, for example, a stable text like the Devi Mahatmya that's on everyone's tongue across South Asia, across the diaspora, verbatim, um, one doesn't think of manuscripts. One doesn't think to go, oh, which is this the critically edited Devi Mahatmya? Is this part of Banerjee's uh, edition of the Markani Purana? So there's also the tension of texts preserved in oral tradition. Now, in the case of Devi Mahatmya, luckily, across the paramparas, as far as I've gleaned, there, it's the same. It's the same recitation, particularly the Tamil uh, Durga Puja festival. But I'm sure there are um, lineal teachings on, you know, uh, the texts appended uh, or, or belonging to the Skanda Purana, or there, there might be variations in, in various Guru Gitas, or, you know, there may be various lineages who have texts preserved in oral memory that are still being taught, you know, aloud in live transmission. And then that's a whole other series of questions, but I, I just wanted to, to raise the issue of the, 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 the peculiarity of the text, because I think it really, uh, not, not peculiarity, I think maybe ambiguity is a better term of the text, because it really underscores for um, a more generalist audience um, the importance of the work that you uh, have done and are doing with the Puranas, uh, particularly with the Ganesha Purana. Um, now, the Mahabharata, synchronistically, I happened to be speaking to one Arti Dhand earlier today, and she teased me about, oh, you seem to really like the Puranas, but, you know, the Mahabharata is where it's at. I said to her, <laughs> I love the Puranas, there's so much there, but I have to confess that the Mahabharata holds uh, easily some of the most gripping storytelling I've come across in any language from any historical period it's just endlessly fascinating so i'm not surprised that you're still enthralled with this text and that you're still working out um some of the the, the some of the historical context in relation to buddhism um which brings me uh to another theme apparently you've written a book on buddhism recently was it a scholarly book? <laughs> it's, well, it, it's based on scholarly material. It's a book called the In, In Search of Bliss, A Tale of Early Buddhism, was published in 2019 by Vanguard Press in Cambridge in the UK. And I'd written it years before and had no success in getting it published. And we were in Whistler in Canada, actually, and uh, where there wasn't much for us to do, my, my partner and I, and I used to go for walks, she didn't want to go for a walk, but that's beside the point. So I just Googled a few names and sent one off, sent a, man, a copy of the thing off to this publisher and they accepted it to my shock and horror. Anyway, it's available at you know, various places that people will know of. It's basically a book about a monk called Shema Pala who in the first or second century, I think of the fourth, I think, century of the common era, is sent down to South India to investigate salacious rumours about the Buddha's, monk, Buddha's cousin, Ananda. Because if you read the Vinaya, the early book of conduct, you'll see that Ananda is always getting into trouble. He goes into the king's chamber when the king is having sex with his wife and so forth. And he's very, very naive. And... This monk, Shemapala, is effectively a logician and a philosopher and arrogant because he thinks that the lay Buddhists are idiots by and large. So he has to go down to, make his way down to Tamil Nadu. He doesn't know Tamil. And he, he gets impatient with the 
lay devotees of Hindu deities. But eventually he meets a Swami who, and they discover a cult of the living dead centered on the god Yama. And they end up having to confront this. And while they're doing it, the, 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 the monk realizes that his arrogance is untoward. And so it's a, it's a book, it's a novel about self-discovery. I mean, that's a cliche, it's a pious cliche, but it's a novel about self-discovery and the interrelation between the Hindu Swami, who unfortunately um, is engages in a kind of self-sacrifice at the end, and he himself has got baggage that he's carrying. And the monk eventually finds that Ananda was a beloved figure who wasn't salacious. The rumours, unfortunately, weren't correct. And he goes back to North India and discovers that the... Um, the administrators in the Sangha want, to, want anything covered up that might have any re, re, um, vestige of scandal about it, and he goes back into in he goes back to a monastery in Kashmir somewhere, which has got a fantastic library. But he's learned about compassion. That's the important thing, which the Buddha himself pushed so strongly. So anyway, that's what the book. That's what it's about. So what? So have you always dabbled in fiction, or where did, yes. what was the genesis yeah. of this? Oh, when I when my kids, my daughters were young, I used to read, make up stories for them. These ridic ridiculous nonsense, and I self published one in two thousand fourteen called Harry Dwight and the Quest for Mayoralty, which is basically about these two friends who are always getting into trouble. And, and um, one of them wants to be a mayor and so forth. And there's a lot of slapstick humour. But um, no, I've always been writing bits and pieces of fiction, but it's very hard to get fiction published. And I'm not good at marketing. You need to be good at marketing. So all of this kind of... So I continue to work, write stuff on fiction and so forth. And I've written stories about animals and ducks and this kind of nonsensical, nonsensical stuff. But some of it's got an, an element of humour in it, I think. But they, interrelate, they interact with each other. The, doing the scholarly stuff interacts with fictional stuff. And I've also written a book on Australian politics as well 20 years ago. And they interrelate with each other. Well, this inter interrelation is, is why I couldn't decide whether to host your podcast formally for um, um, uh, New Books in Indian Religion to talk about you as a scholar or to host it on the Life Wisdom podcast because clearly you see the connection between your object of study and um, lived experience, right? And so maybe you could say a bit about a bit about that overlap or a bit about um, 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 uh, the utility, you know, the, the wisdom, like what have these texts impressed upon you or studying them? What, what can one take away from them? Why, why are they so impactful to you? How, well, uh, um, why do they inspire you to write narrative? You know, you, you feel free to dive into whichever of those questions most resonates. So um, I think that working as a, working as a scholar in a, in a very tight Germanic kind of scholarly environment, people tend to be writing for each other. And it's like a lot of the political stuff that I read at the present time, mainly left wing, because that's that's what my um, where I'm coming from. We're, we're preaching to the converted all the time, and it seems to me that we need, or I need, in particular, to extend beyond that to go to a much more general audience. And I've 
often given papers where people ask a question and preface it by saying this might be a stupid question. And I've written 15 papers on responses to stupid questions, at least, and none of them are stupid in my opinion. But I think looking at a text like the Mahabharata and a figure like Yudhishthira, we can see that this person is fractured in a way that reflects humanity and womanity and both humans of both genders in very many ways. The Mahabharata represents a view of culture. We might I was thinking after Nick Sutton's talk, we could even translate Dharma as culture in a way, but I think that's 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 going off the deep end a bit. It seems to me that we've got in these texts a very sustained and sophisticated reflection about the nature of existence, how people interact with each other, how they interact with themselves, how they define themselves. And this is very relevant to the present day. I mean, the world today is a disaster area because of climate change and the potential of what's going to happen. And the fact that we've had um, 30 disastrous years of neoliberal economic and cultural policies, which are now manifesting dictatorships all over the world because the general public don't understand what's going on, but they sense that things aren't right. If we go back to these particular texts, we can find all sorts of answers to these problems, these perennial problems, just like in Shakespeare. I mean, Hamlet is very similar to Yudhishthira in many respects. But we can, again, look at the Buddha. The Buddha is probably one of the best theorists of change that we've ever seen. And he very quickly realised that people are ultimately conservative and can't cope with any kind of dramatic change. And so, again, we can learn a tremendous amount about someone who stood back. He's lived in, he lived in quite a few different environments, social environments, stood back, observed, and then developed a sophisticated theory. So we've, in these classical texts, we find a restatement of problems that, have, that arise all the time, irrespective of the fundamental changes in society caused by digital technology. The problem of being a human remains. And these texts tell us that wonderfully, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. Um, I initially started off as an English literature major at university. And I uh, had a circuitous route whereby I dropped out, I worked for a while, then I returned and I, I found that I can study uh, narrative and philosophy and history under the umbrella of religious studies, studying Sanskrit texts. But really, um, now it's sort of really crystallized for me with this online school that I have. It's called the School of Indian Wisdom. But even before that, I was teaching continuing studies at the University of Toronto. And I was looking to mythological narratives for, for really um, insight into the human condition. Um, because really, I think that is in many ways what they're designed to address, you know, big problems being human, um, perennial issues. So it's, it's, um, it is fascinating to see other scholars pan out, you know, pan out from the, the academic lens and, and actually see the text in action in their lives, uh, you know, see, see the conundrum, see, see that, you know, in many ways we're all on the Kurukshetra in one way, shape or form. And perhaps now collectively we're on a Kurukshetra a battleground of sorts. So it's really, really fascinating. I did not, I was not aware of your, um, of your, 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 your writing of fiction 
uh, it's not surprising now that I put put two and two together that you know you're looking to read the Puranas through a narrative or a, a holistic lens. So that's I find that fascinating, actually. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we close today? Not really. I think I think we've covered a lot. Um, like you and I both are very attracted to looking at narratives in particular kind of ways. One thing I might say is that um, in this country in particular, and I think in a lot of <clears throat> throughout the world, the development mythology is being pushed very strongly in the use of rea so-called reality TV, which all of the listeners will know what that is, and through soap operas and so forth. <clears throat> People seem to want by this mythology, I mean stories that people know are fantasy, competitions that people know are fantasy, but at the same time, uh, re-invoke re many fundamental themes in the society, competition, individuality, success, romance, and so forth. These are coming in Australian television in particular. It's full of this kind of stuff. I never watch it, but it is significant because it is bringing out a kind of a mythological response to, <clears throat> to the kind of changes wrought by digital technology and neoliberalism over the last 30 years. And I suspect in ancient, in India, throughout for the last 3,000 years, this kind of mythology of a different kind, but nonetheless there, has really defined how people have shaped the world around them and seen the world around them in responding to external forces. And there are, there are always external forces that we have no control over. Um, you know what? I'm not, I don't know. I don't have my finger on the pulse of pop culture for sure. But one thing that I've been trying to um, share in different ways in various public settings, um, I had this platform called Power of Myth for a while. This was a couple of years before I founded the School of Indian Wisdom. And really, it was just sharing that mythological narratives are not passe. They're now in sci-fi fantasy. And they're actually um, some of the best maps for, for meaning, for making sense of life. Like, you can't... Uh, the enterprise of meaning-making, to me, is the enterprise of storytelling. Like, storytelling yeah. is how you make meaning, right? And, 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 and science is a wonderful methodology for understanding the world, but it's, it can't possibly be the arbiter of the human experience. It can't, it can't compute the inner life or mythic archetypes or, or, or narrative structures in the same way as just, you know, our, our innate consciousness can. And so um, I'm not surprised, but I'm intrigued uh, <laughs> to learn <laughs> that um, 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 um mythic ar archetypes are, are still capturing the, the public imagination. Yep, very much so. Fantastic. So um, we'll formally close. And uh, if you can just stay on for a minute after we yep. close. Uh, for those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Greg Bailey um, uh, at, at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University, now retired, but clearly busier than ever before. Uh, uh, unfurling insights about the Puranas and um, the Mahabharata and the meaning of life itself. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the power of narratives, ancient and modern alike. Take care. <laughs>